Excellent. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting in, in verse 17, and we're going to read right on through through verse 34, the end of the chapter. <clears throat> now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Rory? Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful passage to be studying this week as we uh, look forward to Thanksgiving. Lord, as we look at the Eucharist and meaning giving of thanks, Lord, as we would come to the table after the message today and, and thank you and remember the wonderful sacrifice that you gave so that we might be redeemed from our sin and the penalty of it. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts, Lord, that would hear your word and bow the knee to its authority, God. Lord, that you would change us, Lord, that you would refine us and purify us, and Lord, that you would be glorified in the way that we fellowship, in the way that we break bread, in the way that we share uh, with one another, in the way that we share in what you've done for us, God. We pray that you would just speak today in a way that only could be attributed to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. story is told of a man taking his little boy up to the communion table and they grab the elements and walk back to their seat and the little boy asks, dad, dad, what is, what is this all about? What does this mean? And uh, the dad just kind of quickly leaned over and said, son, this was Jesus's last supper. And the little boy said, man, they sure didn't give him much, did they? <laughs> well, today we're looking at the Lord's last supper Portion control a little bit will be discussed today, and uh, as verses 17 through 33 uh, speak of corruption and correction in communion. So that's our title for this morning, corruption and correction in communion. Uh, the Corinthians had a regular gathering, typically on the first day of the week, called love feasts, uh, similar to our 242 home groups. Uh, there would be feasting and fellowshipping. By the way, true fellowship doesn't need grub. It doesn't need coffee or donuts. 
But true fellowship is any time the saints gather together and center around Jesus for his glory and their good. And oftentimes we say, hey man, we had a great fellowship time at Starbucks. We had a great fellowship time, you know, uh, in the foyer when they brought donuts and had a bake sale. And it's like, we're having a great fellowship time right here as we're opening up the scripture and we're, uh, we're studying the word of the Lord and we're pondering him and uh, making ourselves available to be changed by him and encouraging one another. Now, normally these Feasts, these love feasts, would have a time of uh, communion that would follow a meal. Paul addresses in this chapter some self-centered disorder that was taking place during these feasts. I want to give you, I think it was five main points today, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, Five main points. I hope you can hang with me through those. And the first one that we see as we just go through the text is that there was corruption in the communion service. There was corruption at these love uh, feasts, uh, especially by the time it got to the communion or the uh, Lord's Supper portion of the meal. In verse 17, he says, now in giving this instruction... Uh, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And so you got to hand it to the, the Corinthians. It was to their credit that they had been gathering together, something that is neglected by so many Christians. And that's in disobedience to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Don't neglect that time of of being together and not just getting together, but assembling and using your gifts to edify each other and to to further the kingdom. Uh, And so they, they were obeying in the sense that they were gathering together, but often we err in the sense that we think just because we're getting together, we're accomplishing good. If we just got together, that's all we need to do. And there's much more than that uh, in our times of fellowship, in our times of assembly. And, and in this case, we see there was way more that was needed than them just getting together. Uh, we see no commendation here on the part of Paul. These love feasts were anything but loving. All right, They were the opposite of that. They were selfish feasts. They were rude feasts. Uh, They were coming together, not for the glory of God or for the building up of one another, but for the worse, Paul uses that word. Malachi chapter 1 verse 10 speaks of uh, the Lord saying, Who is there among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. There are times in the, in the scriptures where we see a gathering together, if it's not done rightly, uh, can actually be something that the Lord abhors, that the smoke of the offerings from the sacrifices on the altar would burn the Lord's eyes. He has no pleasure in those things because the heart of the people are still far from him. It's a good word for us today as you perhaps maybe gather regularly at a church or at our church, but maybe your heart is distanced and maybe you're you're disobedient to the Lord throughout the rest of the week and you have idols set up in your life and you need to know that the Lord isn't impressed with your regular attendance or your regular, you know, devotional life if you have no devotion in your life to the things of the Lord. The religious stuff just doesn't impress the Lord. And he says in verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. He says there are divisions. And remember, he'd been written a lot of letters from people in the church that uh, were, were addressing concerns, and so Paul takes a chance to answer those concerns. And in this case, there's these divisions. That word division means to tear. It means to tear. And so often when a division takes place within a church, that's exactly what happens. It's something that rips people apart. It's something that is very violent. Uh, I've experienced people dividing uh, the church, even if it's just them leaving a church. And I'll tell you, it's not a simple thing. When, When people leave a church, it's like a divorce. It's like a divorce and the elders, our hearts break and we weep and we stress and we lay awake at night and we miss these people and we long for them when they leave just because they're not satisfied with stuff or they're frustrated with stuff. It's like a marriage 
When you're married, you don't like the sights, the sounds, the conversations, the things. And rather than fighting and being a part of it, and I mean fighting in a good way, where you would fight for that relationship, you just, you just leave and just, ah, oh, let's go to the next better place. It's just like a spouse just saying, you know what? There's no commitment. There's no covenant relationship here. We're gone. We don't care. And so uh, just a good word, you know, the word division means to tear. And there is that tearing that takes place. And it's a very fleshly, carnal thing. Paul says it in the same book that we're studying in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you plead with someone in the name of Jesus, man, there's like, you're begging, man. That you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Don't you like that? Perfectly joined together. May the Lord work that in us. And I believe that that, that's happening in our church, praise God. Like Ephesians 4 says, that we would be knit together. That we would be joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. And if you find that there's a, a lack of that same mind going on, Be in prayer about that. Approach the people there would be a division with and talk about how there's not a same mind and work towards reconciliation. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Some of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. There was this prideful divisions. And later on in chapter 3, verse 3 of our same book, he says, you're still carnal, where there's envy, strife, and divisions, and tearing among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And so we studied all this in the past, how Paul had addressed these factions and cliques and sectarianism that had taken place in Corinth. And now we see there's divisions in the church that are evident at the love feasts that are taking place. If any place there shouldn't be divisions, it's at the love feasts. It become a divorce feast in a sense. And Paul, who apparently was taking all these, all these concerns with a grain of salt, he was inclined to believe that this was so, knowing the history and the character of the Corinthians, that they seemed to be fleshly, divisive, carnal people. Verse 19 says, but there also must be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The word factions here is a different type of division. It's not quite the the tearing and the sectarianism that had been taking place where there were clicky divisions, but this is a new word. It's a new type of division, and in the Greek, it's the word heresies. Interesting, huh? Interesting that heresies are very dividing. They are factions. They are these religious parties of false teachers and heretics that creep into the church. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He, just so you know, wolves are going to raise up from among your own ranks. Even from among the elders in Ephesus. He says, so be warned of that. These factions must be among you. So that those who are proved may be recognized among you. Those who are considered good and uh, genuine and honorable, it can be known who those guys are. And this is just so beautiful here because we see that God in his omniscience and in his sovereignty and in his power, he's able to use these heretical factions for the good. You know, and God's able to do that. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 16? I, I read this recently where um, Paul and Barnabas were on their way to their second missionary journey. And they got in a, in a bit of a fight. In fact, the contention became so strong that they had to split ways. You guys remember that story where uh, Barnabas wanted to take his nephew, John Mark, back on their second mission trip again with them? But because John Mark had been a bit of a weakling in the first missionary journey and had to go home because things were getting too tough, you know, Paul was like, we're not taking this guy with us again. He forsook us in the first missionary journey. But the son of encouragement, Barnabas, was like, we're taking him. It'll be good for him. It'll be, you know, and they just, so finally the contention became so strong. They went, both of them probably were in the flesh. But God in his sovereignty was able to use that for the good so that a new missionary journey went out this way with with Barnabas and John Mark and uh, Paul and Silas went off this direction and helped spread the gospel. God, he's able to use those times of division. He he doesn't mean it's, it's good, but God in his goodness is able to use it in the same way he does here. 
He's able to use these factions of heretics for the good, that he might distinguish between the truly faithful and the wolves in sheep's clothing, between the wheat and the weeds. And the Lord and his sovereignty from time to time will use differences in doctrine and theology to weed out the faithful from the unfaithful. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3, he says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And speaking there of false dreamers and false prophets, he says, Don't listen to him because it's a time of testing to know who is a recognized, approved individual that they might be recognized and widely known and evident, clearly seen. John Calvin puts it very helpfully here when he says, God in this way, in the expression of heresies as they creep into the church, not only are the hypocrites brought to light, but on the other hand, the sincerity of the faithful is proved. For as on the one hand, this makes plain to us the fickleness of those who've been rooted in the... uh, uh, who've been word, rooted in the word of the Lord or the dishonesty of those who've been making a, uh, a habit and show by pretending to be good men. So on the other hand, it enables the good to give a clearer evidence of their steadfastness and sincerity. So he says, man, you know, there, there must be these things. It's going to happen to show who are the faithful. But he says, when you come together, therefore, when you come together in verse 20 into one place, It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Just to be clear, Paul says, here is what you are not doing when you've been coming together to these love feasts. Though you may be drinking wine and eating bread, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. And here's where we see that corruption taking place. Verse 21 says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So first of all, individuals were not considerate of others, the people who'd not even arrived to the meal yet. The Lord's Supper had been taking place. We also know it as communion. It's the word in the Greek koinonia, which means fellowship and to share something. Communion is a time when we are sharing with one another all of the benefits that the cross of Christ has made available to us, his people. Primarily, this is to be done in the corporate gathering of the saints together. And they'd not been waiting for everybody to get there. And so eventually, one was left hungry because the others had eaten it all. Another guy had drunk it all, and so he was literally drunk. The love feast was often provided for by the more wealthy people in the church. While the poor would contribute less, they had less to offer. And in fact, they would still be working off distantly in the field. And so by the time the meal had started, they were still trying to get there and bring their meager portion uh, to this agape feast. The wealthy would not wait for them to arrive and would eat all of the food and drink all of the wine to that point of drunkenness with the result of the poor finally showing up and going hungry and thirsty, leaving no opportunity for koinonia, sharing with one another in the Lord's Supper. What's Paul's reaction to that? What? It's not a question. (laughs) You see a question mark there? What? All right, I looked it up. This is called an interrogative exclamation. He's interrogating them and yelling at them all at the same time. It's one of these many exclamatory statements by Paul, like, certainly not, and God forbid. And here he says, what? This is going on? It's a good reminder for us when we go to our love feasts that we know as 242 groups or chili feeds that we have here at the church or our break the fast dinners that we have in the springtime, that these feasts are more about the love than the feasts themselves. Don't come to the gathering itself in a place of starvation that you forget the reason that you're there. That you're there for the fellowship, not for the meal. And Paul goes on to say that. He says, don't you have houses? Houses? What am I, Australian or British? Houses. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Let this be a warning to all of those of you who come to these potluck soup dinners and you leave none of Stephanie Mapes' Zupa Toscana for the rest of us or Ken Curvin's seafood chowder or Chad Carpenter's chili con muerta de diablo. Save some for the other people. 
It's more about the fellowship than the food itself. And Peter and Jude would later on speak of, that's a way to see the depravity of men and the wickedness of false teachers. That they will carouse in the daytime, Peter tells us, they would be spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. All right? It's also why in the, in the church discipline process, we're not to eat with these individuals. And Jude speaks of those that are immoral and doomed. In Jude 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. These individuals could pig out and get sauced if they were home. They didn't need the church and come to church to make a mockery of worship and a farce of true fellowship. The early church was a highly populated uh, place with poor and slaves. For many, this was their only decent meal of the week and it become a sham. He says, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? These poor individuals in the feast were shamed by not even being able to participate. They don't have much to offer and they're being ostracized by their poverty. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see that some of the original practices of the early church, something that we do together today, in fact, that's, this is why our groups on Sundays are called 242 groups, taken from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where we see that they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And these are things that we try to do on a regular basis, including in our home groups, But don't you believe that the things that are regular practices, that at the end of chapter uh, 2 in verse 47, it says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Do you think the enemy loves these things taking place where daily people are getting saved? Of course the enemy doesn't like that, and he attacked it. Look how quickly the evil one goes to the heart of the church to destroy Acts chapter 2 verse 42. All of this chaos in the love feast was impinging on the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, you're crazy if you think you're observing the Lord's Supper here. And remember, who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of people who live in a town. A lot of them are coming out of paganism. And all around them, there's a moral idolatry, sexual immorality, orgies galore, this and that. In fact, one of the things the pagans would do would get together for their drunken orgies and they would just have a chaos feast. And he says, church, look at yourself. Do you look like the world here? Should I praise you in this? I do not praise you. This is equal to today's slogans. I'm downright disgusted with you. All right? So that was point number one. We have the corruption of, in their communion. And here's part two. Correct theology of communion. In verses 23 and 24, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This demonstration of communion that Paul is going to speak forth in a very accurate way was something he received straight from the Lord himself. Well, how did that happen, you ask? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 and 17 through 19, we see a little bit of Paul's testimony and a part of his history. Right after he was saved on the road to Damascus, the gospel that was preached to him, he says, it wasn't something that was according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And he tells a little bit of his history here, but down in verse 17, he says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. He went out to the desert and returned finally to Damascus. Some believe it was 15 years that Paul spent in the desert. And then after three years from in Damascus, went up to Jerusalem to finally see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. Many believe it was in the desert that the Lord Jesus personally discipled Paul and equipped him to be the disciple, uh, the apostle, excuse me, that he had him to be. How wonderful that Paul's able to say, this isn't something that I got just from men, but this is something I got from Jesus himself. As Alistair Begg says, the chain of historical tradition and communion goes back to Jesus himself unbroken. There's something to note here as we read of Jesus' recollection of the Lord's Supper, something that he wasn't even at, that as you read the gospel accounts and as you read uh, 
1 Corinthians 11 here. And as you take all the different translations and read them side by side, a beautiful thing is that there's not much variance in the translations here. It's amazing how all the translators and all the men in the boards that compiled these things, they're, they're keeping things very, very similar so as to not get confusing. So when do we see communion being instituted? It was at Passover, correct? If you've read the gospel accounts, you know that. But that's not what Paul says, per se. It says here, it was on the same night in which he was betrayed. Interesting that he made mention of that. That all around Jesus, betrayal was taking place. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, he looks around and he says, one of you will betray me. And they look around and they're all asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? It's the guy that's dipping his bread in the cup with me right now. By verse 17, they look around again and, they, and, and by that point, Judas had gone out, being filled with Satan to betray him. Among man's antagonism and betrayal of the Lord came a sacrifice of redemption. And we see Satan's attack there at the Last Supper. Jesus, on the night he was being betrayed. That's when this communion took place. And it says how he did it. It says when he'd given thanks. What is that, given thanks? Is he just blessing the food? Is he just uh, saying grace? Jesus himself knew that the bread was significant insofar as it conveyed something. And so perhaps in his giving of thanks, he was thanking the Lord for the symbol of the Passover meal, the plan of salvation, the gift of redemption, the atonement that he was going to be for sinners. And if you've ever heard communion or the Lord's Supper referred to as the Eucharist, we don't use that phrase much at Calvary Chapel, but it actually means the giving of thanks. The giving of thanks. And that's what Jesus did when he broke the bread. He gave thanks. And that's what we do when we take communion. We give thanks for God's plan of salvation and redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what was involved as the bread was broken it was all taking place during the Passover celebration. It was a regular feast of the Lord. During the Passover feast, a special bread had its place and a special cup had its place. And as a church, we started celebrating Passover this year. We got together in our various home groups and even added some groups. And we came together and we ate lamb and we broke bread and we ate horseradish and dipped you know, sprigs of parsley into salt water. It was just a very beautiful, wonderful time of, of Passover and celebration and even communion. And if you remember, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine were important parts of this Passover celebration. And Jesus took these important pictures and reminders of Israel's deliverance from the world and from Egypt. And he added to them meaning when he connected them to us with his connection of his own death on the cross for us. And so the order that Paul lays it out for us here is the same order that Jesus laid it out. He started with the bread that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread in the Passover feast, it's wonderful picture. It comes in a stack of three, the top, the middle, and the bottom. The middle loaf is what is taken at this point. And it's, a bro it's broken in half as Jesus broke the bread. It's a piece of unleavened bread that is, uh, it's striped and it's pierced and it's unleavened. Speaking all of Jesus, how Jesus was whipped and pierced for our transgressions and yet was without sin, was without leaven. Jesus also being the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This second person is taken out and is broken and is eaten. Half of this afikoman, it's called, this middle bread that means, behold, I have come, is taken and placed somewhere in the house, hidden in a sheet, and the children are to go around, or a napkin, if you will, or a cloth, and the children are to go around, and it's a game, and they're to find this middle piece of bread, the afikoman, and when they, when they uh, take this middle piece, they find it, and they celebrate, and they get a prize. Whoever finds it gets a prize. 
And it's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus and the joy for those that would know him and find him. So Jesus took the afikomen, the I have come, and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. The cup, as it says in verse 25, the same manner he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The fourth cup of the feast was the cup that Jesus was at here, and it's called the cup of redemption. As you read Matthew, as you read Luke, as you read Paul's account, there's slight variation at this point, but not much. As Luke's, uh, Matthew, let's just read Matthew's gospel real quick here. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. A difference slightly in Luke's gospel is he takes the cup in verse 20, Luke twenty-two twenty. He takes the cup after supper and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's one page away for most of you if you just want to flip back. In verses 14, it says, or excuse me, 15. I'm sorry, 16. I mean, we could do a whole Bible study and I'm just trying to get right to the, the good point here for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Is it not the sharing of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion and the sharing in the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that bread. Do we have 18 in there? Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? The reason I share from a chapter ago is it shares how intimate communion is. It's much more than a symbol or an action or an external thing that we do. Just as Israel and the priests would eat and drink either judgment or blessings and benefits upon themselves, it's impossible to have a neutral reaction. We are sharing, we are have com having communion in what Jesus did as a priest would offer up the sacrifice and then eat of the sacrifice. He would be receiving into himself all that that symbol represented and provided for, all that that sacrifice represented and provided for. In the same way, we do that in communion as we share the word means, as we are willing contrib contributors to communion as we participate in it. What a wonderful understanding of communion that it's much more than snack time in the middle of the service as so much of my heart was as a kid growing up. Man, when are you gonna shut up, man, and give me that cracker and juice? At least that'll take my mind off the pain of what I'm going through right now. I know you're thinking it, all right? And when the Lord took my heart from snack time or a breach in the agony of the boring sermon to understand that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul, praise the Lord. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood. I thank you for my body. And there's something very radical, something very spiritual that is going on as you are sharing in what Jesus has done. Yes, it's a symbol, but it's much more than a symbol. So much so that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it goes on to say that if you're partaking in, in the communion time with demons and sharing in demonic activity, you cannot share in the communion of the Lord's Supper. It's not possible. It's a very dangerous, wicked thing to do. And Jesus says both this bread and this blood, it's my blood of the new covenant. Just as the old covenant had to be sealed by the blood of bulls and goats, so too the book of Hebrews tells us the new covenant, the new testament had to be sealed with blood. But Hebrews chapter 9 says it wasn't sealed with the blood of bulls and goats this time. It was sealed with the precious, spotless blood of Jesus, our high priest himself, who shed his blood and only had to shed it one time and no more. And it's sufficient to atone for our sins. 
This is a wonderful new covenant. It's wonderful and extravagant, and it's so much more than what we used to have with the corruptible blood of bulls and goats. What mere man would have the audacity to institute a new covenant between God and man? Jesus does it. Here Jesus founds a new covenant and he seals it with his blood, even as that old covenant was sealed with blood. And all of the hopes of the Old Testament prophets writing of this new covenant told us that this new covenant, one day, it'll be about an inner transformation. An inner transformation, not just external religion and beep, boop, boop, kill the animal, do this, do this, wash like this, wash like this. No, not religion like that. But it's an internal transformation. It's a heart change where we're cleansed from all sin. And Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That was not Old Testament stuff. That was pointing towards this new glorious covenant sealed with new and better blood by a better high priest. It's about God's word and will now being put in us. As he says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will now put my law in their minds and in their hearts and write it on their hearts, not on tablets of stone anymore, but written on our hearts. And he goes on in Jeremiah 31, 33 to say, it's about a new close relationship with God. I will be their God and they will be my people. Have you been a part of this new covenant Or are you just a religious individual? When you come to communion, you are declaring, you are remembering that you're part of this new covenant sealed by the blood of the lamb and the broken body of the lamb, Jesus God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can have this new covenant relationship with God. Have you had that? I'll tell you, if you're bored with the things of God, you may not, and you just need to ask the Lord to search your heart, you may not have been a part yet of this new covenant. But the beautiful thing is today, today if you would hear his voice, you can enter in, you can be a part of all that he's won and bought and paid for for you. Do you live your life as if there's been no internal transformation? You guys, that is old covenant, not new covenant. Do you live your life as if there's been no cleansing of your sin? Guys, there's been a cleansing of your sin. It's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Do you live your life as if there's no word and will of God in your hearts? If you have difficulty like reading the word and you just don't want to, you just don't care, gosh, come before the Lord and say, search my heart, Lord. Maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I'm just on the fringe, but God, you say in the new covenant that you'll write your word on my heart and mind. And today, just you can come to Jesus and say, Lord, I want this new covenant that Rory's talking about. I want an internal transformation. I want intimate relationship with you. I want your word written on my heart and on my mind. Some people live as if there's no new and close relationship with God, but that's exactly what he's bought and paid for. In verse 25 and 26, we have three big words that would stick out to us. The first is remembrance. Remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Ask yourself the question, have you entered into that deep, cleansing, soul-cleansing work of Christ? You may do that today. You must do that today. Or your communion will be an old covenant thing, external religious and for nothing. Remember, remember what he said it was for and then proclaim it secondly. Proclaiming the reality of the person of Jesus Christ and the significance of the cross and the redemption of sins. What is a wrong thing is that in communion we feel that when we get the elements we are making a presentation as a priest or we need a priest to do that for us. We make a presentation of the Son of God, and some of you may have been brought up with this notion. It's a wrong notion. It's a wrong notion. We are not the mediators. And so there's some false theology of communion that I must address very quickly. Very quickly, you may have been brought up something similar to a Catholic Mass. The Catholic Mass, speaking of the continual sacrifice of Jesus... That every time they partake of communion, Jesus is brought back to the altar and sacrificed again and again and again and again. 
It's the doctrine of transubstantiation held by the Roman Catholics who teach that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Let me quote from the World Book Encyclopedia. It says, Mass is the celebration of communion in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, great, wonderful. They're taking communion. According to the Catholic teaching, each Mass is a true sacrifice in which the risen Christ becomes bodily present on the altar as a victim who is offered anew by the church of God, the Father, as atonement for the sins of man. So what the, uh, this encyclopedia just said is that mass denies the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to get a little deeper, and I want to quote to you from the, uh, what's called the Doctrina de Missa Sacrificio from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says this, The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offers himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory, which means this is able to atone. It is also Catholic belief that in objective reality, not merely symbolically, the wheaten bread and grape wine are converted into Christ's body and blood, a conversion referred to as transubstantiation, so that the whole Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay, so essentially one thing we see is that according to this doctrine, the priests in the Catholic Church are essential for communion time uh, because they are a mediator between God and man and they offer this, uh, this sacrifice uh, before the Lord again and again and again. And think of how many times that happens. Uh, it's not just in Prineville on a regular basis. It's everywhere across the world regularly that they believe Jesus is slayed, 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 slayed for the last couple thousand years, okay? First of all, we don't need another priest. Read the book of Hebrews, especially, who tells us that all those other priests, great guys in the Old Testament, but now we have a true and better priest who doesn't go in once a year to offer himself, but he went in one time to offer himself as the sacrifice. The sacrifice has been done, and now he ever lives to pray for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. You remember when we read in this chapter here of Jesus, when he held the bread and broke it, and he held the cup and he spoke on it. In holding the bread, he distinguished between his physical body and the bread which portrayed him. This is against the notion of crass literalism, which has no foundation in the institution itself. He took the bread and the cup and held them and showed them a distinguishing element between the actual flesh and blood and the symbol that he was holding. Some who hold to transubstantiation would look at verse 24 here and say, hey, Jesus said, this is my body. But look in verse 25, how it declares that the cup is not the actual blood of Jesus, but the symbol of the covenant ratified and confirmed with the blood of Jesus. Plus, we look at the whole of Scripture as a commentary on the rest of Scripture. And in John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine as he hung on the cross, he said something profound. He said, it is finished. Not, it will go on for thousands and thousands of years over and over again. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Romans chapter 6, verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lived, he lives to God. Hebrews 7.27, this Jesus, our high priest, does not need daily as those Old Testament high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You guys, this is a word in the book of Hebrews that he uses regularly. Once for all when he offered up himself. And he does it in Hebrews 9.12, that it wasn't with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood that he entered the most holy place once 
for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Or Hebrews 10.10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Say it with me. Once for all. Or 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body. Where did he do it? On the tree. He did it on the tree, not on the altar, again and again and again, thousands of places all over the world. It was one place, Golgotha, Mount Calvary. He was the Passover lamb that was slain. Now, I don't mean to Catholic bash at all, all right? Not out to, to, to dig on them, all right? In fact, Martin Luther even held to the idea of consubstantiation, teaching that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but by faith... They are the same as Jesus' actual body. Now, Luther, if you know Luther, he didn't believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, but he didn't go far from it. Or John Calvin, who taught that Jesus' presence in the bread and the wine was real, but only uh, was uh, not real, but it was, excuse me, <laughs> thought I had typed, typed over there. Calvin taught that pre- Jesus' presence in the bread and wine was real, but only spiritual, not physical. These are all reformers, right? Coming out of Catholicism. And Zwingli taught that the, blood and the, or that the bread and the wine were mere symbols that represented the blood and body of Jesus. And so these Swiss reformers debated the issue with uh, Martin Luther at Marienburg. There was huge contention. Luther insisted on some kind of personal presence because Jesus said, this is my body. He insisted over and over again, writing it on the velvet uh, there at the communion table. And he wrote, this is my body in Latin. And Zwingli replied, a little bit of church history for you. Jesus also said that I am the vine and I am the door. But we understand what he was saying. And Luther replied, I don't know, but if Christ told me to eat dung, I would do it knowing that it was good for me. Luther was so strong in this because he saw it as an issue of believing Christ at his words. And because he thought Zwingli was compromising, he said that uh, Zwingli was of another spirit. Ironically, later on, Luther would read Calvin's writings about the Lord's Supper, which were essentially the same as Zwingli's of symbolism, but God's presence there at communion, and he seemed to agree with Calvin's views. A little church history for you. Some of you didn't mean much, but it should mean a lot, because we want to take communion and partake in spirit and in truth. Scripturally, we understand that the bread and the wine are not mere symbols, but they are powerful pictures to partake of and to enter into as we see the Lord's Supper as the new Passover. Thirdly, we have anticipation here. This is just the third word that we glean from 25 and 26. How often do we do this? Until he comes. We look to that final supper that we have called the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Alan Radpath said, as you break bread and bow your head before him, what sort of sermon are you preaching? Often we've broken bread together around the Lord's table And then we've gone out to do just what those disciples did. We have denied him. Man, we're to remember the Lord's body and his blood until he comes and look to the Last Supper. This moves us to our third main point, which we'll go through quickly. uh, These next couple, where Paul gives us the correct heart to have in communion. In verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, oftentimes, and maybe this has been you, you've been taught that you must be worthy to take communion. And that's not what is speaking of here. That's not what the language speaks of. You must be worthy to come and partake here. Not at all. Hey, you must be a sinner who recognizes your need for a savior and come and remember the one who paid for it for you, who paid for salvation and who's come to redeem you. This word, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, speaks of someone who would come irreverently. It doesn't mean go out and make yourself worthy and then come on in and then you'll be able to partake. It's for anyone who needs to remember the work of Jesus on the cross. It's for anyone who has sinned. The story is told of an old Scottish minister observing his elders pass out communion And a woman shamefully hesitated on whether or not to take it. And he leaned forward and he said, take it, woman. Take it. It is for sinners. It is for you. As one Puritan preacher said, I'm a great sinner. And he is a great savior. That's what we remember as we come to the table. 
I like the paraphrase that J.B. Phillips gives us of this text. He says, this can only mean that whenever you eat the bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming that the Lord has died for you and you will do that until he comes again so that whoever eats the bread and drinks the wine without due thought is making himself like one of those who allowed the Lord to be put to death without discerning who he was. And so for those who are stubbornly unrepentant, they are mocking what Jesus did on the cross to cleanse them of their sin. And so they should not partake of communion. As Hebrews chapter 10 says, those who are in that stubborn, willful place of sin, you are counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing and you're trampling under your feet the blood of the Son of God. Not a good time to come to the communion table. Verse 28 says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a man examine and test his heart and prove his heart and judge that his heart is good before he comes, that he wants to partake of what Jesus has done for him. And Paul says that in other places like 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself as to whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He drinks judgment, or the word is pino, drinking pino. Uh, It sounds like a wine. Uh, It means to soak up or to experience something. And if you're going to soak up and experience communion with an irreverent heart, you're actually soaking up and experiencing judgment upon yourself, saying that you have no care in the sacrifice of Jesus and the call to follow and obey him. If that's the case, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. Don't use it as that snack time in the middle of the service to draw it out. It's such a long religious service. We need a snack time here. If you have no intention of following Jesus and humbling yourself beneath his lordship, then do not eat or drink of something that is spiritual in nature and symbolic of the bloody, brutal sacrifice of the Son of God. You cannot, 1 Corinthians 10.21 tells us, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he There's the self-examination before you come to the table that must take place. There's that test of whether or not you know Jesus. A communion service is a wonderful time for somebody to come to Christ. And if you're here today and you're not born again and you're not saved, but you come as a sinner who needs a Savior, today the communion table is for you. You can come forward and you can take an, an element of bread that represents the Lord's body that was beaten and bruised and stripped and whipped for you. And broken for you that you might be saved. That you might not be the one for all eternity that would be bruised and whipped and broken and beaten. And you take the cup, the element that reminds us of the blood of Jesus that sealed this new covenant. That we might know God intimately and have relationship. This brings us to the fourth main point. A correction that takes place after communion is done wrong. Verse 30 tells us, for this reason many people are weak and sick among you. And many sleep. Because these individuals had been irreverent at the love feasts and the communion observances, people were weak, they were sick, and they were actually dying because of it. Just shows God how he intervenes and may even take a person home through death to prevent them from entering into further sin and being a catalyst of shaming the church of God or the glory of God. As mentioned in 1 John 5, 16, there is sin leading to death, And in Acts chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira seeming to be examples of this. Apparently, a believer can sin to the point where God believes it's just best to bring them home, probably because they've some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should be removed. This is radical intervention on the part of God, similar to chopping off your hand or gouging out your eyes. Verse 31 tells us, but if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If you would examine yourself, as verse 28 says, you would not be judged by the Lord. As Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's a great psalm to read and to ponder as you come to the communion table. 
How ironic that the very thing that was to be a thankful feast, remembering redemption from judgment, had become the source of judgment for the Corinthian church. They were to be remembering, thank you that your wrath is not upon me, and it become something that they were being disciplined for. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. All of this judgment of weakness and sickness and even death was loving correction from the Lord. And we don't have time to read it. But Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 speak of the Lord corrects those that he loves as a father corrects his son. And anyone who doesn't receive the disciplining chastening of the Lord is illegitimate and not a son. We know from many studies at this church that the discipline of the Lord is a wonderful thing that shows that he loves us. In fact, Revelation 3, 9 says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The chastisement of God's children is in order to push them back on the paths of righteousness. And finally, our fifth point, you guys did great, the solution. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Have some manners. But if anyone is hungry, verse 34, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. I hope you got much more out of this chapter today than simply don't pig out at the church potlucks, (laughs) all right? But that the Lord Jesus has a wonderful and radical new covenant for us to deliver us from sin and death. He did something that we can never do for ourselves. He was our sacrifice to redeem us from sin and from death. And we're going to remember that today. A special day today is we have some homemade communion bread. It's about four times the size of a normal wafer, and it is delicious, so it's good we just read through this chapter so that you're not pushing each other over to come and get some and going back for seconds, okay? Because there's another service coming after you, all right? We got to share with everybody, all right? But let's go ahead and pray, and the worship team can come forward. Lord, we want to prepare our hearts right now for communion. What a wonderful sacrament. What a wonderful uh, time of remembrance, Lord. How great. I know that these few studies in chapter 10 and 11 have opened my eyes, Jesus, to see that it's much more than a symbol. Lord, that you are present in this room with us and that as we partake of the blood, or excuse me, as of the bread and the cup, Lord, Lord, that we are sharing in what you've done. We are letting it just be known in declaration that, that, Lord, we are feasting of what you've done. Lord, we want our theology of communion to be right so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. And so, Lord, as we come to the table Lord, we want to examine ourselves. Search us, Lord. Know our hearts. Try us. See if there be any wicked way in us, as the psalmist says. And lead us in the way of everlasting. Lord, if there be any man or woman here who's never entered into the new covenant, Lord, what a wonderful time and place to do that as they take the cup and the bread and say, Lord, I want you to Change me from the inside out. Change my heart. Make it pure and make it new. Lord, let me know you as a a man knows his best friend. That I might know you, Lord. Write your word on my heart and on my mind. Lord, let me have that new heart and a new life with you. If there be any man or woman here today, Lord, that is stubbornly holding on to a sin or an idol in their life. You tell us strongly that we cannot partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would work repentance in these individuals' lives. Lord, if they've lifted up any person or any place or anything or any hobby or anything to be their God above you, something that they love and think about more than you, that they would sacrifice for and spend time with more and and get excited for more than, than you, Jesus. Lord, that you'd bring them to repentance, to forsake those idols, to serve the living God. We thank you, Lord, that you are our priest as we come to the table. You offered yourself up once for all that we might have a clean conscience and be able to serve you in, in, in purity. And so as we close in this last song, 
come forward after examining yourself and take the bread and take the cup and go to your seat. Or you may kneel at the altar if you choose to. But just continue examining yourself. When you take the bread and take the cup, thank the Lord as Jesus thanked, was thankful. Thank the Lord for his plan of redemption. And realize that as you do, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. And you're saying, come Lord Jesus. Come forward as you're ready. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.